Hi everyone, I'm Dan Abrams and welcome to the first in the series of Law News Debates. These will also be podcasts in our new series of debates there as well. Today's topic is related to Donald Trump and impeachment. The proposition is, based on what is publicly known from news reports and statements, there is no legal basis to impeach Donald Trump today. Arguing on the pro-impeachment side, so against the proposition, will be Fordham University law professor Jed Sugarman. Sugarman teaches administrative law and torts. He has a JD and PhD in history from Yale. He's also the author of the 2012 book, The People's Courts, Pursuing Judicial Independence in America. And he was a co-author of the historian's amicus brief in the Crew versus Trump emoluments case. He's also the founder of sugarblog.com. Arguing against impeachment will be attorney Ross Garber partner at the law firm of Shipman and Goodwin. He's the co-chair of the firm's Government Investigations and White Collar Crime Group. He represented Alabama Governor Robert Bentley, South Carolina Governor Mark Sanford, Connecticut Governor John Rowland in each of their impeachment proceedings, so he's a real expert in this area as well. Now, keep in mind, this is based on what is publicly available. Robert Mueller and his team will continue their investigation in secret, and they may turn up more than we currently know. They may also interpret things differently. Uh, than based on what we know today. We also understand and recognize that impeachment is a political act. Yes, there is a legal basis that is required, but in the end, someone's only gonna get impeached if Congress has the will to do it. Nevertheless, it is still worth discussing and debating whether there are legal grounds to do so. So here's the format. Each side is gonna get an eight minutes to uh, give an opening statement. I will then question each for four minutes. Uh, they will then confront each other for about 10 minutes where I'll moderate it. And finally, closings of three minutes each. And so we begin with Professor Sugarman arguing against the proposition and for impeachment. Professor. Great, well, first of all, thanks for having me. This is a really important debate. It seems like every day it gets more important. Um, I think the most important thing to focus on today is what the process of impeachment means, what its legal parameters are, and to focus on the words high crimes and misdemeanors, because the most important question is to understand what high crimes and misdemeanors, what that phrase means and what it does not mean. There's a misperception that a high crime and misdemeanor must be a crime and misdemeanor in the conventional sense in the sense of being a felony. And that is precisely not what the what our founding fathers put in the Constitution. It was much broader, uh, much more about the problems of corruption or incapacity, uh, as well as pertaining to other abuses of power that might be covered by felonies. So I'll first talk about that background and explain. And then I wanna focus on two specifics, uh, obstruction of justice and corruption and the emoluments clause. So first, let me give the background of what the meaning is of high crimes and misdemeanors. It was borrowed from English tradition back from the 14th century. And let me give you some examples of how the English applied high crimes and misdemeanors to people who were impeached for misappropriating government funds, appointing unfit subordinates, not prosecuting cases that should have been, not spending money allocated by parliament, um, losing a ship by neglect, suppressing petitions, um, and granting warrants without cause. In other words, all kinds of abuse of power and even neglect. And in the United States, the uh, high crimes and misdemeanors have been applied to habitual drunkenness and dementia. That's one of the first impeachments in American history. Showing favoritism on the bench, using the office for financial gain. Um, 
you, cutting, spo cutting special deals with insiders, bullying people in open court, and filing false income tax returns. This is more or less a greatest hits of the Trump administration after seven months in terms of misappropriating government funds or unfit subordinates. It's a list of abuse of power and neglect that already applies with or without finding a specific felony. Um, because this was intended to be high crimes and misdemeanors, the word high is about the use of the office or about power and the abuse of that power. Um, and also, our, some of the most important founding fathers were very clear about this, uh, the relevance of high crimes and misdemeanors to, as a broader context. Hamilton in the Federalist Papers said, those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of public trust, they are of a nature which may be peculiar propriety, be de de denominated political, as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to society itself. And I would submit that in the past 12 days, we have seen injuries to society and the fabric of society itself. Madison talked about the risk of when you have a single executive, the risks of, quote, loss of capacity or corruption because you only had one president. And he said that the, uh, the impeachment clause was, quote, indispensable for defending the community against the incapacity, negligence, or perfidy of the chief magistrate. Incapacity, negligence, or perfidy. And originally, the first phrase put into the impeachment clause was maladministration or bad administration. And uh, Hamilton thought that was too vague, so, or Madison thought that was too vague. So Madison decided to borrow from English history and put in high crimes and misdemeanors, but this is what they meant. And to, uh, to say a bit more, the idea of a corruption, abuse of power, or attacks on democratic norms all could be sufficient reason to bring impeachment, articles of impeachment, and convict um, based on the last seven months. But let me be more specific, because I think it's important to also recognize that there are felonies by the book that, tr the Trump, uh, that President Trump has already violated. So the first is obstruction of justice. Now, Nixon uh, gives an example of what we need to think about when it comes to high crimes and misdemeanors. What we have in the Trump, uh, with President Trump is something I would call a reverse Watergate. Remember that in Watergate, they first had a break-in, no, that they knew in 1972 of crimes committed with the break-in to the Watergate Hotel and the, and the Democratic National uh, Committee's headquarters. It took a lot of time to figure out what Nixon knew and when he knew it. And two years later, they found evidence of uh, the, the, the smoking gun of the missing tapes. And in those tapes, uh, the Nixon and Haldeman are talking about stopping the FBI. The FBI is not under our control. We need to use the CIA to tell the FBI to stay out. Those are, it's all paraphrasing, but close to what they said. And Nixon approved. And Article One of the impeachment, of the articles of impeachment uh, that were uh, sent out of committee in Congress, Article One uh, mentioned one, interfering with the Department of Justice, the FBI, and congressional investigations. Two, quote, endeavoring to misuse the CIA. Three, making false and misleading public statements. Those three elements are already part of Trump's handling of the firing of Jim Comey, and I would submit that uh, that. Uh, President Trump has already violated 18 United States Code 1512 and 1505 by the book in committing a f uh, felonious obstruction of justice. He's already basically confessed as much in, uh, to Lester Holt on an NBC interview. He said, and in fact, when I decided to do it, to fire Jim Comey, I quote, I said to myself, 
you know, this Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made-up story, and it's, it's an excuse by Democrats for having lost an election they should have won. And from the official transcript of Trump's meeting uh, with, uh, with Russian uh, officials in the, in the Oval Office, he said, quote, I just fired the head of the FBI. He was crazy, a real nut job. I face great pressure because of Russia. That's taken off. Those are basically two public or official transcribed confessions to obstruction of justice. And if one of the key parts of proving obstruction of justice is to find corrupt intent. And basically every week we find a new story that shows that corrupt intent, whether it was Comey's testimony, the new reports of Trump this week, uh, reports that he was ranting at Senator McConnell about uh, not protecting him from the Trump investigation, and his rewriting of Don Jr.'s testimony, a statement about his meeting uh, with, uh, with Russian lawyers and those suspected of being uh, hackers, um, that involvement with rewriting that testimony, rewriting that statement falsely, is also more proof of corrupt intent and obstruction of justice. So we already have, I think, more proof and a worse case of obstruction of justice than we had in Watergate. Let me jump to uh, one more point, which is about corruption, profiteering from the office, and the emoluments violations. So these are not crimes, but remember that uh, high crimes and misdemeanors relate to the misuse of an office. And the, what is the emoluments clause? The Constitution, the founders, were worried about people in office misusing those offices. And, and the emoluments clause in the Constitution says this. No person holding any office of trust or profit shall, without the consent of Congress, accept any present, emolument, or title of any kind whatever from any king, prince, or foreign state. And there's another emoluments clause that says that a president cannot receive payments from uh, any part of the federal government or state government beyond the president's salary. President Trump has already profited by emoluments to the tune of millions of dollars um, from foreign governments, whether it's the Saudis, whether it's the Kuwaitis, and, and also in the states, we've seen state governments, California, New York, Texas, and others, they will be paying Trump millions of dollars these year, this year. That's unconstitutional. It is a violation of the office, and that too should be a basis for impeachment. Professor, thank you very much. Ross Garber, taking the other side. All right, thanks. Um, so by way of background, my experience is, is practical. Um, it's not theoretical, it's practical. Uh, impeachments have a role in our constitutional democracy. Um, but it's important to point out that no president has ever been impeached and removed from office. Uh, president uh, Johnson was impeached uh, but acquitted. President Clinton was impeached at, but acquitted. Um, and even impeachments on and removals on the state level are incredibly rare. And that's because nullifying an election uh, disrupts the balance of powers. Uh, Congress in impeachment uh, asserts a supremacy over the executive branch. And, and that disrupts uh, the normal functioning of our government. And that's why the standard for impeachment uh, is very high. And the process is very difficult and uh, disruptive. Uh, the professor talked about the standard for impeachment in the Constitution, and he focused on high crimes and misdemeanors, but didn't focus very much on what, preceded that, what precedes that language in the Constitution. The Constitution refers to treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. So the Constitution sets up examples of what high crimes and misdemeanors are. Uh, they include, uh, specifically, 
treason and bribery. Those are examples. And so they don't extend to very many uh, other uh, uh, acts of conduct. And, and let's take a look at the history of the impeachment clause. Uh, initially, uh, the standard was uh, proposed to be malpractice or neglect of duty. Uh, this language was removed from the proposal and replaced with treason, bribery, and corruption, or corruption. The word corruption was then eliminated. And on the floor, as the professor noted, there was a proposal to include maladministration, and it was specifically not included in the Constitution. The standard, therefore, is very high. It is uh, treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. And, and let's take a look at the historical examples of efforts to impeach a president. In the case of uh, President Andrew Johnson, uh, there was an, a an allegation that he uh, acted improperly and contrary uh, to uh, congressional legislation uh, by removing a cabinet official without Congress's approval. Uh, he was impeached. He, uh, there was a trial in the Senate, and he was acquitted. I think most historians would recognize that that was probably or almost uh, certainly not an appropriate use of the impeachment power of, uh, of Congress. Uh, because we, what we don't want to do is get into a situation where Congress is second-guessing a president's uh, uh, decision within the uh, course of his, his office. Uh, similarly, with respect to the Clinton impeachment, uh, that too, I think most of the participants would acknowledge was not an appropriate use of the impeachment authority um, because it was indeed incredibly disruptive to, to government uh, and the standards were, uh, were, were slippery. Uh, this is not, as I think uh, the professor is, is suggesting, uh, a parliamentary system of government where Congress can express their disapproval through impeachment, where Congress can express their disagreement with the president's decisions through impeachment. We don't have recall elections in the United States. Elections have consequences. Uh, Donald Trump was elected president. There's going to be another election. And opponents of the president, like the professor, will have their chance uh, to weigh in at the, uh, at the ballot box in, in several years. Uh, it's important to note that the process of impeachment, as we talk about this in, in a somewhat academic way, the process of impeachment, uh, when it is real, is incredibly disruptive, uh, and it's incredibly long, and it's incredibly hard. It begins with an, with an investigation by a congressional committee. There's the, then a vote in the House of Representatives. There would then be a full trial in the U.S. Senate. and. Even then, the president would re be removed only with a two-thirds vote uh, in the Senate. And while all of this is going on, while this process that the professor is advocating plays out, the real work of the government uh, effectively grinds to a halt. And that is why the standard is so high. And that is why impeachment and removal of a president is, uh, is rare and, and, in fact, unprecedented. Now, I do want to talk about the, uh, the obstruction of justice issue uh, that the professor suggests would be a ground for impeachment. Mm -hmm. uh, 
under our Constitution, the executive authority uh, of the United States is vested solely in the President of the United States. The Constitution doesn't specifically give the FBI director any power over and above what the President of the United States has. And historically, uh, presidents could and, uh, and sometimes would direct law enforcement efforts. The president is, in fact, the, effectively the chief law enforcement officer in the country. Now, it's true in the past several years, uh, the FBI has exercised a degree of independence, uh, but there is nothing in the Constitution that requires that. And, and when we look at uh, what, uh, the, uh, uh, what happened with uh, the president and former FBI Director Comey, uh, we should understand that as uh, Director Comey acknowledged, the president has the authority to fire the FBI director for any reason or no reason at all. Uh, it's also important to note that the president, if he wanted to, uh, can pardon anyone, and I would submit including himself. Uh, president Bush pardoned Casper Weinberger on the eve of uh, of his trial. And back then, not surprisingly, uh, a, the prosecutor responsible for, the, for that case uh, alleged uh, publicly some sort of obstruction by the president, but no action was taken because in the end it was acknowledged that the president had the full right to pardon uh, Secretary Weinberger. Now when we look at the facts, uh, it's important to note that uh, what there is and what there isn't. What I didn't hear the professor uh, outline, and perhaps he'll do it, is specifically how uh, the obstruction statute is, is satisfied. Uh, what we know uh, is that uh, Director Comey told the president that he was not under investigation. Uh, the president asked Director Comey to announce that publicly. Uh, the director refused. Uh, essentially uh, and arguably allowing an erroneous impression that the president was under investigation. The president expressed hope that, Co that Director Comey didn't pursue an investigation of Mr. Flynn, uh, but he didn't order him to stand down. So uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the Emoluments Clause, which I think provides essentially no basis for impeachment. But essentially, I think it's important as we have this discussion to keep in mind the high standard and the difficult process. Gentlemen, thank you. I'm gonna now ask you each uh, questions for uh, about four minutes. Um, uh, Professor, you seem to, to focus a lot on this issue of incapacity. Um, even, even more, uh, it seems that in obstruction, obstruction are, are, are you saying, saying that, that you think, think that today there is a, a case, case to make that, that Donald Trump, Trump is so incapacitated that the Constitution would Say require, require but certainly, certainly allow, allow or encourage um, him, him to, to take and remove from office. Well, let well, me just clarify, clarify that. that I want to emphasize the obstruction of justice case. case. I, think I think for a couple of reasons. reasons. One, One is, is I think, I think it's, it's when you have a law on the books, a felony, it's clear you have more case law. You, I think there can be a, a more objective debate about what that, how that felony has been applied. And I think just as a matter of politics, um, people, when they can identify a felony statute, and we can talk about how it's been applied in the past and recognize that it applies here, we can have more consensus as opposed to what I think is more subjective, a question of capacity. 
But I wanted to emphasize that when the founding fathers talked about high crimes and misdemeanors, look how often they talked about capacity. Right? So that's very interesting, and I, I appreciate, appreciate how Mr. Garber emphasized the text of treason and bribery, but when we get to those other words, well, then we need to see what the history says. We will, right? we will come back uh, to that, but I do want to focus on the obstruction. You Great. focused a lot on the firing of James Comey, but isn't uh, what Mr. Garber says true, which is that the president can fire the FBI director for any reason or no reason at all? That is the power that the president has under the statute for the FBI. The question is, just because someone has the power to do something, does it mean that every use of it is rightful? Let me give you an example right out of the clause for high crimes and misdemeanors. The president, Mr. Garber, talked about the president having the power to pardon. It's true. What if the president was paid a bribe of a million dollars to pardon somebody? Well, then you'd have the clause, treason, bribery, and high crimes and misdemeanors. You'd have bribery for, a, the president has the power to pardon, but the act of pardoning for a bribe would be under the, sta under the, the clause uh, grounds for, let me give you one other example. The president has the power to um, order military strikes. Now what if it turns out that that military strike, we discover that it was uh, to uh, eliminate a, a witness, an adverse witness, or he found out that his uh, wife was sleeping with someone and he orders the military strike to kill someone. He has the power to do something, but the, the question is the intent. And if the, the intent is what in law school we teach, defines a crime. So you can still have a crime, even if someone has the right to own a gun or to fire a gun, if they intend to fire to kill someone, that right or power is replaced by what would be the criminal intent. That's did, what we have. Did I understand you to say that fighting with Mitch McConnell is grounds for No, no, no. Let me, Mr. Garber asked what's the, the, the asked specifically about the statute. Let me just, if I can give you the statute for obstruction of justice, and I'll tell you why I'm talking about that McConnell question. So, so this, this is, is the statute 1512 C2 in the U.S. Code, uh, 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 Title 18. Whoever corruptly obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years. One of the, the big problems with applying the statute is to figure out what, what it means to corruptly do something, to corruptly obstruct. And so I, my argument is that firing Jim Comey was the obstructing, influencing, or impeding an official inve investigation. The question is corruptly. And what I'm saying is uh, the way that Trump has uh, ranted at McConnell for not, for not protecting him from the Russia investigation, Comey's testimony about the background before his firing and how uh, uh, President Trump handled the rewriting of, uh, of Donald Jr.'s statement, that's all evidence of the corrupt intent around the core, the key act, the actus reus, we say. Let me turn my questions um, to you, Mr. Garber. Does the president have the legal right to end an investigation into his own administration's alleged wrongdoings without any ramifications? The answer is, in short, yes. Uh, and what we heard just now was sort of a list of hypotheticals. Perhaps there would be a scenario where ending an investigation for, for example, some reason uh, 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 promoted by bribery or something like that, that could be an issue. But there's been no suggestion that there was that kind of conduct here. But if he did, it, it, let's assume for a moment, let's just take, take this assumption for a minute, that James Comey's testimony is accurate and that James Comey's perception was accurate, that he was trying to influence him. 
um, in this in the context of this investigation. He was kept trying to get him to drop the investigation, and that ultimately he was fired because of that. Is that enough? It, it, it's certainly not enough for a crime of obstruction, and it's not enough for an impeachment. And and here here's some of the ways we know that. First, the president clearly has the ability to pardon anybody. So the president could have pardoned everyone that James Comey was investigating and ended the investigation that way. And there's no question of that. And historically, we know that something like that has happened in the case of Casper Weinberger. So, so we know that. So, you, so you're saying that, that he can pardon anyone he wants, if family members of his, for example, get indicted and he pardons them, you don't think that that could potentially be um, a grounds for impeachment? I don't. So the, the Constitution specifically gives the president the authority uh, to pardon. And, and the exercise of a presidential uh, uh, power that's specifically given him by the Constitution can't be the basis for an impeachment. Now, that assumes that there's not a situation like the professor was talking about, which there's been no suggestion of. And the, and the fact that we're sort of reaching for the hypothetical bribery, I think, reflects why impeachment at certainly at this stage, doesn't make any sense. You had said you wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, emoluments, et cetera, which is uh, the financial side of this. And it sure sounds like the professor's saying that if the president's businesses have benefited as a direct result of him having the position, that's a, a real legal concern. Do you not share that? Um, it, it's not a basis for impeachment. As, as the professor noted, uh, generally, it's been acknowledged that impeachments are most appropriate where there is a crime. And in the United States, uh, we have an innumerable number of crimes on the federal books. Uh, people have tried to count them, they can't. And if Congress had wanted to make violation of the Emoluments Clause a felony or a crime, they could, but they, but they didn't. Uh, and so uh, a violation of the Emoluments Clause would not be a basis for an impeachment, not be a basis for, for charging a crime. And, you know, we, we could probably spend uh, the morning talking about whether there was a violation of the Emoluments Clause. As you noted, Dan, the professor though didn't, uh, is that there's no allegation that Donald Trump personally is benefiting from, from foreign governments. We're talking about businesses uh, that he at present isn't running. Uh, so I think it's, it's a long, long, long road to even, you know, prove a, a violation of the Emoluments Clause. All right, clause. so now this is the best part yeah. of this debate, when the two of you can talk to one another. Um, I see you've been taking notes already, uh, <laughs> Professor, so why don't, you, uh, why don't you start? Sure, I've got a couple of questions. I mean, one is, I talked a lot about the Nixon and Watergate example. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear you address, so should Nixon not have been impeached? Well, so the first point is that uh, there was no full process with Nixon. Uh, articles were referred out of committee, they were never voted on in the House, and they never went to the Senate. So we don't know, we I'm don't know. I'm asking you, what, what do you, so should Nixon have been impeached it, or not? The answer is we don't know what the end result would be, number one. Number two, though, is assuming I agree that in the Nixon situation, he should have been impeached. When you talk about a reverse Watergate, what you're really saying is it's not Watergate. It is not Watergate. Uh, it bears actually very little resemblance to Watergate. As you noted, in the case of Watergate, there was a break-in. There was criminal activity going on, and, and that was known at the time of the impeachment proceedings. Number two... Oh, so are you saying there was no criminal activity with the hacking of people's emails under the 1986 statute? That's a, it is a crime 
uh, we, it's the same issue. We have a break-in in Watergate, a break into the hotel, then, uh, and that's a crime to break into a hotel, uh, to, to, to steal, uh, to, to, it's, it's theft and break-in. Um, this, now, we already know the crimes were committed in the hacking of, of emails based on a 1986 statute. It's just that we uh, don't know what Trump knew or when he knew it about those crimes committed by other people. Yeah, but it's that's a pretty big... similar. It, no, no, that, that's actually the crux of it. What we don't have any information of are two things. What President Trump knew, if anything, and, and when he knew it. Well, I'm and, talking and, about the obstruction. And, so I'm, I want to focus on the similarity. We have an under... My point was yeah. we have two underlying crimes. We have a break into the Watergate Hotel, and we have the break into people's emails and the dissemination of those emails, both crimes. We eventually found out later uh, about Nixon's uh, misuse. He has the power, using your point before, he had the power to tell the CIA to do something or to tell the FBI to do something. Um, just like President Trump might have the power to, to tell the FBI to do something or to fire someone. But if, Trump, but if Nixon was engaged in obstruction of justice, and was, should have been impeached. I would say, clearly, I'm not gonna dance around it. I think Nixon should have been impeached. Yeah. I will also tell you, I'll, I'll get to Clinton later, but I guess my question is, if we already have evidence uh, that Trump was uh, intending to obstruct the FBI investigation, then we have, even though he has the power to do it, he still violated that, that felony. Well, except for the key part, which is we don't have the evidence that you're supposing that we have. And in fact, everything we know is that that evidence doesn't exist. In other words, in Watergate, we had evidence that the president and his men were trying to cover up that crime. That's what we don't have here, and that's what you're imagining. Uh, in all of your hypotheticals, you imagine really critical facts that actually don't exist. You're imagining bribery. You're imagining a cover-up of a crime by the president. Those are facts that we don't have, and 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 I think it's it's incredibly important uh, to make sure that we point that out as we talk about this notion of impeachment. If we had those facts, perhaps we'd be having a different discussion. But we don't have those facts. Did you want to ask a question? Yeah. yeah. So so let's talk about the obstruction statute, for example. Mm -hmm. And and there are there are two parts of it that I think are are key. Uh, one and and when you speak about it, you use two different words. Uh, the question is, is what, w whether the, what the FBI was doing was an official proceeding. And, uh, and I and many others uh, think that it wasn't. You know, an FBI, the FBI having a look-see at something is not an official proceeding. There was no grand jury investigation. And I think that's one problem with using the obstruction statute, which I'd, I'd be interested in you talking about. And then the second is the corruptly uh, language. And, and whether, based on what we know, not imagining bribery, not imagining that the president's involved in some cover-up that we have zero evidence of, where is the evidence of the corruptly? Sure. Uh, well, I'll, let me go back to this a step. First of all, in terms of whether the statute applies, uh, there is one circuit, just to get into the weeds in terms of legal interpretation, um, the fifth, uh, fifth Circuit and the Second Circuit, which are you know, uh, uh, regional appellate courts um, uh, that deal with these uh, interpretation of statutes have said that it applies to FBI proceedings. Uh, the Ninth Circuit has said it doesn't. So we have a, what's called a circuit split on this question. But I don't want to get too bogged down on just w what um, criminal courts or criminal appeals have said about this because I want to make sure we, we 
understand, I think there's a mis misinterpretation you're giving here of high crimes and misdemeanors. Again, it doesn't have to be just limited to the four corners of a criminal statute. If it's close, I mean, I would say, look, we have a clear case of obstruction of justice here, the way that some circuit courts have applied it. If there's even a, if there's some wiggle room there, the question of high crimes and misdemeanors doesn't have to get boxed into uh, what are traditional felonies because we're not talking about putting President Trump in jail. We're talking about the impeachment process. So there are but, two different But that questions. means we're, we're talking about undoing an election. We're not talking about just putting somebody in jail. We're talking about undoing an American election, disrupting an American democracy, which I'd argue is at least as significant as right. putting one individual in jail. Uh, well, Mr. Garber, what I was struck by in your opening statement was how often you talked about how the business of government is too important to get distracted by. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but the but business of government is too important to, to get uh, distracted by impeachment. I'd argue the opposite. I'd say the, the, the business of government is too important to allow for the abuse of power and corruption. I think it goes both ways. And I think when you have law breaking, when you have felonies, and I will argue, I do think that this is covered by the, by the felony of obstruction of justice. And I want to get back to your first question. I don't want to get mm -hmm. sidetracked from your first question, which was, um, first of all, does this apply to an official proceeding? I'd say there is ample authority that it does. And the question about corruptly. Right. I think that there is growing evidence of what uh, the intent was here. And that's why I talked about Comey's testimony. But look, Trump said so himself. He said the reason why I fired Comey was because of this FBI investigation into Russia. He confessed so on national TV. I mean, maybe this gets to the question of mental capacity. It's very odd for someone to confess to felonies on TV or on official transcripts, but he did so. And we are only getting more evidence uh, just from the New York Times this week, uh, uh, more reports about his behavior. So but that's let's, the point let's about stay with the that point. If, yeah. if what was happening was the president believed that there was a phony baloney FBI investigation that was potentially politically motivated and not based on facts at all, and that the FBI director was engaged in that investigation. And moreover, the FBI director acknowledged in private that the president actually wasn't a target of that investigation, but refused to say that publicly. Under, those, uh, under that scenario, which by the way is what we know now, under that scenario, is there a crime? Where's uh, the corruption? Well, oh, th so the cr I would say that we have more and more evidence. I mean, part of the point here is that we have an underlying crime. We have a violation of 1986 hacking laws. And it is appropriate for the, an investigation to investigate further. And it's also important, I think, to clarify what the impeachment process is versus conviction. So one, one distinction I'd make is we have an ongoing investigation. Now, uh, Dan was saying earlier that there is a question about whether what's appropriate now. Mueller's investigation is still going. But we have, even before we find out what the rest of what Mueller finds, I think from the context of the news reports, we know what was happening was very serious. I would say this, just the fact that we know about Don Jr. and the campaign manager, Paul Manafort, and, uh, and Jared Kushner meeting in that hotel room suggests that this is more than just a scurrilous, uh, uh, meaningless investigation. And to obstruct, Let's say it's a suggestion. To obstruct, to obstruct that yeah. investigation, I think, shows corrupt intent. Yeah, let, let's say there's a suggestion, which I disagree with. That's still not enough to throw out an, an American election for. I mean, it, you do two things. One is you, you do throw out sort of these suggestions. And two is you imagine facts that, that actually don't exist. Right now, there are congressional investigations going on, and we should let those play out. And there's a special counsel investigation, and there's a grand jury, and we should let that process play out. 
then we won't have to rely on suggestions or hypotheticals or imagination about any of this stuff. We can actually find out what the truth is. But until that happens, until it happens, there's no basis for impeachment. All right. Well, gentlemen, that was uh, fascinating. Um, and since we only have uh, 30 seconds left, I think rather than delve into another topic, uh, I'll move to the uh, closing arguments from each of you. Each of you will get uh, three minutes for this. Um, on this one, I'm going to start with you, uh, Mr. Garber, making your, uh, your final remarks on this topic. Yeah, I, I think what we have seen and what we will see are opponents of the Trump administration talk about the prospect of impeachment and to do it for political reasons. And as we hear those discussions, it's very important that we keep in mind the actual legal standard, number one, and number two, the process. And the actual legal standard is treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. That is an incredibly high standard. It's so high that no president in U.S. history has ever, ever been removed from office for satisfying that standard. And it's important that we keep that standard in mind. The second thing it's incredibly important to keep in mind is the process. Because that standard is so high, the process is also incredibly rigorous. It's a process not based on hypotheticals or imagination or suggestions. It's a process that's based on evidence and proof. And certainly today, there is not that evidence, there is not that proof. And before we talk about disrupting the government, about taking Congress's time in an impeachment investigation, uh, employing armies of lawyers by both the House of, Representative, House of Representatives and the administration, I think it's important that we stay grounded in reality, we let the investigations play out, and we not jump the gun on talk of impeachment. Professor? Great. First of all, I want to say thanks for this opportunity, yeah. Mr. Garber, uh, Mr. Abrams, Dan, uh, for this opportunity. I think we need more of this kind of discourse. Um, I think one of, uh, I appreciate just getting engaged on legal questions and talking about history and talking about the importance of this republic. Um, and this is, I think, a great moment for us to, to be able to, um, to, to talk about what these standards mean and to clarify, and, and I, I appreciate that. But I think that's precisely what's at risk with this administration. I mean, I talked a lot about obstruction of justice, but I think this larger question, the founding fathers understood the risks that are involved with one single executive who may abuse that power. And so this idea that we could have free speech and discourse uh, among people who disagree um, without being shouted down or without having uh, uh, allegations, um, I think those fundamental democratic values are at risk. Um, and so I would make a conservative case at the, in the end for impeachment. That conservative case is based upon the vision of the founding fathers, the importance of the Constitution and, and rule of law, the idea of history, stability, and tradition. And in fact, I would disagree with Mr. Garber about this question of what high crimes and misdemeanor means. It's not in such a high standard to leave in office the corrupt, to leave in office those who would abuse power, to leave in office those who would um, regularly have attacks on the basic norms of our democracy about the media and free speech and investigation and to question people's patriotism on a regular basis. These were all things that the Founding Fathers said as I opened. They, these were their concerns about the abuse of power. And so I would say that a high crime and misdemeanor and it is, uh, includes attacks on our democratic values. But I'd also recognize that politically 
um, it starts with debate like what we had today with respect, and it also then uh, it comes to finding of consensus. So we can disagree about whether President Trump has violated basic norms, but I think it is really helpful for us to identify particular statutes, not because it's necessary for a high crime and misdemeanor to find those statutes, but I think it's important for us to build consensus to protect our democracy and to protect the rule of law. That's why I focused on the obstruction of justice question, and I think it's important for us to see those investigations continue to find out what Mueller is, uh, is finding, and it may be premature now, not as a matter of law, but as a matter of politics. I agree with you entirely, Mr. Garber. It's important for us to have Mr. Mueller's investigation continue, to have congressional committees continue their investigation. So when that impeachment charge, when those articles of, of impeachment are brought, just like the ones that were brought against President Nixon for obstruction of justice, for the misuse of the CIA, and for impeding the Department of Justice, the FBI, for giving false statements, all those things that were good reasons for impeaching uh, Richard Nixon, and for also the reasons I think it was appropriate to impeach Bill Clinton, that may surprise you, but I, at the time, in, 19, uh, in the 1990s, I said that President Clinton should have been impeached and convicted because these values, we need our president to obey the, the law, we need a, uh, less perjury, less obstruction of justice, and more to protect democracy from the abuse of power. Professor, Mr. Garber, I think the one thing we have demonstrated today is that you can still have a really interesting, engaging debate and not have a uh, scream fight as exists on uh, cable news uh, sometimes, which I engage in. Thanks for having um, us. As well. No, it was really yeah. great to have you both. Really appreciate it. That wraps up the first law news debate and our first podcast in our series of debates. Thanks for watching. We'll see you back here for the next one.